The waltzes of Middle Europa They charm you and warm you within Oh, give me the free and easy waltz That is the easy And go tell the band If they want a hand The waltz must be Strauss's Strauss's! Yeah, yeah, yeah. Welcome to Voice Print Identification. 2001. A Space Policy. With Wes and Brad. Open the pod bay doors, please, now. Thank you. You are cleared through Voice Print Identification. Episode 1 The Waltz. The most famous piece of editing in film history. And now in all his ebullience, he casts his first weapon, first man weapon, in the air. And then we cut to a spaceship. Along with the Odessa steps in Battleship Simpkin, or of course the shower scene in Psycho 2001. And this particular cut is the most profound use of cinema in a metatextual storytelling sense, letting you know that you have jumped thousands of years in evolution and that the tool has evolved. Not only the tool into a flying machine, but also as a weapon, because something that a lot of people don't uh, realize unless they, you read the book is that those ships at the first part of the sequence are all nuclear warheads. They're floating nuclear warheads. And this takes place during a time where a detente has occurred amongst the, quote, nuclear club involving 28 nations. So there's hundreds of these floating nuclear warheads that are keeping the world safe, quote unquote, because the entire globe is covered. And so no one can make the first move. It's <clears throat> instant held annihilation. Hostage, essentially. Exactly. And in the original novelization and in the original uh, ending of the film, what was supposed to happen is the star child comes back and first thing that happens is it explodes all the nuclear warheads that liberates Earth and begins a new and higher consciousness. You know, is the, is now a cliche talk about that great transition from the bone into the into the space stations, but it's just that's an amazing example of of what he was doing. You know, the uh, uh, how without saying everything is about knowledge, it's about the evolution of knowledge, it's about the evolution of technology. The wheel itself is, of course, the real standout piece of tech that we see. It was conceived that a space station would have to be a wheel and would rotate in order to create artificial gravity. Now we realize all the space stations today have been in zero gravity with the astronauts floating around. They've gotten along without gravity. I'm sure if you were going to live permanently in space or for a long period of time, uh, it would be good for your health to have some kind of gravity. When the movie came out, many people felt that, well, by 2001, we may have space stations that look like that, you know, because already we had rockets that were able to put people in orbit and we were headed for the moon, so sure, why not? This is the one image that everyone knows, whether you have seen the film or not, and a movie filled with iconic images. It's not necessarily the most iconic, but it's one of many. But I guarantee that for those who have not seen the film, the image that comes to mind is of that wheel spinning. Whenever it's brought up, whenever there's a clip, the picture or the clip you're going to get is of that wheel and of that waltz. 
and it has become one of the foundational points of modern cinema. It's iconic. It's artistic. It's technologically viable. It ticks every box of sci-fi fiction. When we watch that, there's something that inherently draws our attention and brings our wonder out. Much like dancers on a stage, you just can't turn away. And to have something so solidified and grounded in actual technology um, several, several years before any of this was even not only technologically possible, but even drawing board uh, feasible. Kubrick was one of the first directors to really go for the utmost in realism. Stanley's um, research was exhaustive on everything. I mean, it was unending. Everything had to be so palpably believable that you, you, there was no margin for error. It couldn't be fanciful at all in any way. Nothing from that movie felt artificial. It felt organic. It felt that the characters are actually um, in space. They weren't trying to convince me this was happening. They were showing me what it was like. Well, we were in touch with NASA, NASA, the American Space Administration, throughout this. And of course, we saw many of their diagrams and models, and uh, they were very helpful. And you know, we chose which ones looked cinematically the most interesting. The main designers, as I understand, from NASA that came over were Fred Ordway and Harry Lange. They designed a lot of the models, including these nuclear warheads. Some of we have seen in the film or in pictures of the models that were destroyed uh, after the film because, as it's widely known, Stanley Kubrick ordered all of the models to be smashed so that they wouldn't be pirated or used in other movies. I, I believe they continue to do this to this day with someone who's either going to uh, take it for malicious you know, intent, piracy, or try to profit on it and sell it as memorabilia unofficially. Absolutely. And the intricacy of these things was outstanding anyway. So Douglas Trumbull, who we will talk about a lot in this series, is uh, widely credited with so many innovations in this movie. He and the other model makers did do a lot of kit bashing, which involves buying up mass market model kits of airplanes and vehicles, and then finding pieces, tchotchkes, and pasting them on in realistic patterns and logical structures onto a model design. We embellished all the models with little tiny bits of plastic molding because of the detail. It's the detail in the molding that made the models, apart from the shapes, made the models look realistic. Okay, this I'm quoting from the book now. This is now page 326 of Michael Benson's book, Space Odyssey. The nine-foot-wide space station model had been mounted on a spindle. A spindle! So this is a giant spool of thread, basically, but instead it's a nine-foot-long, a nine-foot-wide spaceship model. Um, the camera was able to move laterally on a cog-wheeled rod across the studio. So this is a mechanical version of motion control. And therefore, you can get a 3D effect of detachment as you move the camera across what is quote a cogwheeled rod across the studio so I've uh, lubed up many <laughs> uh, I've lubed up many a camera track in my time which is usually with pledge or some other grease yeah something that's not uh, 
that's not going to squeak, something that's very smooth. But uh, he says that it's incremental progress, being the camera, as it approached the turning station was imperceptible to the naked eye. I mean, the other models ranged from two to six feet. The fact that this is nine feet, I mean, proportionally that does make sense to the same scale in terms of the other ships. But it also means that to execute that level of detail, they're going to the extra effort of actually building the full Space Station 5 to the same scale as the other ships. And that is a level of commitment that hadn't been seen before, especially to rig up a system to move that model at that size. That is a very large miniature. <laughs> it is definitely what they started calling bigotures down in the Antipodes. <clears throat> Lord of the did they use any kind of fiber optic lighting? They did. Douglas Trimble, also known for his fantastical use of wiring lighting in ships, especially as you all know, Close Encounters, all of the beautiful lens flares in that, as well as in Blade Runner. Mm -hmm. All of that is through Douglas Trimble and, and his company. Now, the model itself was on a rig. The camera has to move. The models can't really move because we're in a but a time before motion control, computerized motion control. Mm -hmm. So we're having to find mechanical ways of doing motion control as consistently as possible. You'll probably get shots. slack in the model where there's vibrations or uh, maybe pieces of it that would uh, bob, you know, up and down if they were jolted or, or something like that. Absolutely. And you notice in a lot of films of this time that there's tiny flickering, tiny shuddering going on if you look really closely at ships when they're composited against the background that they're supposed to be. That no. was very prevalent before the invention of the Dijkstra Flex. It was just a, a product of its of its time and uh, until I had some genius come and smooth that out. <laughs> exactly. There was, it was almost like watching um, like a low frame rate TV or a bad signal. Had to have perfection. This was a 70 millimeter or 65 rather film going out large format. It's going out in Cinerama, well, in Tadeo, but in a simulated Cinerama, you're, you're getting a roadshow presentation. This was supposed to be something you saw massively on the screen. So every tiny detail. Every star to be perfect. Uh, every background to be correct every foreground to be lit right. He wanted it to look realistic, although we had no idea what Earth things would look like in outer space. When Kubrick supervised the photography of the miniatures and the models himself, I think that was a sign of what was happening to Kubrick at the time. I think that there is a BC and AD situation with 2001. There's Kubrick before 2001 and there's Kubrick after. Mm. I think that he started the repetition perhaps more and more on these takes, Lolita and Dr. Strangelove, specifically to get all the different facets of Peter Sellers, you know, all the different prisms of that diamond of Peter Sellers. And then over time, doing hundreds of takes for a very specific reason on 2001, because no matter what the shot was, it had to be perfect because it was going to be really big. Every imperfection engraved in stuff. I loved working with Stanley, and 
you know, I'm often asked, well, I understand he, he, he did a lot of takes. People have asked that a lot. Well, yeah, I just, we did quite a few takes. Uh, it didn't bother me. And most of the time it was for technical reasons. This was a very technical film. Stanley would take maybe 50 Polaroid shots, testing the lighting for every single setup. It took hours and hours to light them. I mean, many more hours in between sequences than you normally have on a film. I mean, film is always about hurry up and wait, but more so with this film than any other film I've ever done. I'm sorry, Dave. I think one other fun fact about that model itself is it was recently found like it was in a, in a dumpster and somebody pulled it out and it's been ping-ponging around different sightings. Finally, somebody found a piece of it, a big chunk, somewhere out in the snow getting wet and they took a picture of it and posted it on the internet, but they didn't grab it. And so it's vanished again. But Stanley would like that, I'm sure. Maybe the ghost of Stanley had that. I love the idea of the kit bash too, because it gives it a really lived in realistic part feel. Totally. And uh, a lot of the sci-fi and starships of that same era just don't hold up. They were either those super minimal, smooth, mm -hmm. fin rockets, or just so overly complicated it didn't make any kind of physics sense. Attention to the physics of his world. In other words, things that were massive moved in a way that was appropriate to physics. If you go to space, there's no gravity. But in all the space movies before then, people walked around in the ships. And they still do. We even get comments from uh, sci-fi geniuses such as Ridley Scott. Even just uh, recently he mentioned 2001. After that film, sci-fi is dead. Someone of that kind of prolific CV come out and say that science fiction film is dead after 2001 is... Absolutely. I get what he's saying. Yeah. They went so far and beyond to portray everything that we had never experienced before. Totally. And to do it to such a level that aligns with our current technological prowess is unbelievable. Mm -hmm. The wheel itself as a symbol in, in the Judeo-Christian faith, there's the story of Ezekiel who sees the wheel. In Buddhism, you have the Dharma Chakra, a spinning wheel of fire, the wheel of truth always turning. Um, it has eight spokes. The space station does have eight spokes. So it does have eight spokes because it's two wheels that are combined. Combined yeah. by a module in the center. That's perfect. Thank you. And Buddha is known as the wheel turner, turning the wheel of truth. And in Greek mythology, one particular use of the wheel is when Zeus got really mad at Exion and decided to strap him to a spinning wheel of fire. What about Apollo's chariot? And Apollo's chariot also with wheels of fire. And how it brings the sun cyclically around the earth. Yes. Stanley uses various pieces of classical music throughout the film, and I think it was a great choice. To, to go with music that, you know, will be around for hundreds of years and, and the film will never be dated by the music of the moments. Kubrick said, I want this film to succeed not on a level of cinema, but on the level of music. And it is. It's, it's music. It's an opera. It's like watching a sunset 
The whole movie is like watching a sunset. All the shots are very long and very slow and very musical and very, you know, you get to see everything. I think Kubrick knew more about music and how to use it in the film than almost anybody I've ever seen. Getting a little deeper into the audiovisual aspects, I uh, just want to talk about the music of the scene. Music played a big part in the editing process because, of course, the visual effects sequences, uh, no dialogue. How do you judge the pacing of the, the, the scene? How do you judge the, uh, how long the visual effects should necessarily be? The waltz itself, which, of course, uh, turns out came about by accident. Um, Stanley Kubrick's assistant on the movie was Andrew Burke, and, and he said that the projectionist had a greatest hits record, or actually a stack of greatest hits records in the projection booth when they were going over effects dailies. And that, of course, being a long, tedious night of watching repetition of shots and processes, somebody said, why don't we put some music on to keep us awake? And lo and behold, there was the Blue Danube, and after... Kubrick turned, looked at him and the others and said, do you think it's a pure stroke of genius and can we get away with it? He uh, commissioned Alex North to write the score and gave him the notes, as happens all the time with composers. Here are the temp tracks. Here's some ideas. Here's what we want it based on. And as usual, the temp tracks were incorporated as notes and Alex North delivered a soaring piece of lilting music that we hear now. beautiful as it was, didn't live up to the muscle memory that Stanley Kubrick had of the perfect waltz, the Blue Danube. The king of the waltz himself, Johann Strauss II. John. The second was born in 1825 during the Biedermeier era. Vienna at that time was repressed during the reign of Chancellor Metternich. The idea of partners embracing was really huge during this time of repression. Three-quarter time itself is lilting. It's a time signature that is always ahead. You never quite on top. There's a perpetual sense to the fact that there's no resolution. Now, obviously, when you're counting the measure, there is one, two, three, one, two, three, but there's not a box in the same way that one, two, three, four has a resolution at the end of the measure. You're clearly going from four to one, whereas one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, you're always feeling like you're in motion. And there's a twirling aspect to the waltz itself where you're, your partner's embracing the same partner for a long period of time and twirling around and around and around in ever-increasing speeds, embracing closely, you're getting a very real sensual intoxication. All of your emotions and all of your senses are being stimulated in this circular motion. John. Strauss was born to John Senior. And John. Senior was a huge uh, businessman as well as a band leader. 
he employed more than 30 musicians full-time for his own orchestra, but then when his son started composing at the age of six, his mother thought, we have a prodigy on our hands. And there was a little bit of jealousy from Dad. Good evening, Father. Is this true? That you've been taking music lessons? That you've deliberately disobeyed me? I paid for them with my own money. Earned by giving piano lessons. Somebody has to take care of Mother. I hope to do it through my music. Other fathers encourage their sons to follow their trade. You've never given any of us one logical reason for this arbitrary attitude. We all know the real reason. The real reason? You're eaten with jealousy. But he didn't encourage it as much as Mother did, and in fact forbade John Jr. From debuting any of his own compositions, although he pretty much had the market on dance halls himself. John. Senior. Players you've never played before in your life. Well, against his father's wishes, John. Junior debuted, became a smash. When his father finally died, he, he mourned him, but there was a rivalry going on during his father's life. John. Junior took 30 members out on tour of Europe. Napoleon III was dancing to his waltzes. Uh -oh, Mr. Strauss. Strauss, Strauss. I never heard of your music. Never heard of it. <laughs> You'll hear it. Oh, I don't care what your name is. I don't care. But he was writing prolifically as well as appearing as a conductor for all of these tours. He made it to London and then sold out 69 Covent Garden performances, which is pretty, you know, pretty impressive, especially for the uh, late 1880s. He finally made it to America, and when he got to New York, they had a big celebration, 20,000 musicians there to play live under his baton. Unbelievable. Can you imagine what that sounded like? Either the most beatific... Cacophony. Exactly. <laughs> You're dragging. Yeah, sounds real good to me, too. So he was labeled, in fact, the Waltz King. The New York Times called him the Electric Strauss because he was so electrifying and his music was so electrifying. The most important thing, I think, also about the Waltz is it's the only time in history in Western culture where three-quarter time has been the dominant popular music time signature. Never before and never again is everything three-quarter. Anything outside of 4-4 four four was definitely imported from another country, another uh, culture. And it's incredible that you have so many fantastic Indian, Pakistani, and Middle Eastern rhythms with, you know, 11 and a half, 8 time, or 13 and a half, 8 time. But here... We like our time signatures even mm -hmm. and very vanilla. Don't you even touch them. That's exactly right. Chocolate, chocolate chip and arrow, I'll fight you. Yeah. Oh, he was bringing pralines, macadamia nuts to the party. No, this was not a brand muffin party. Heresy. No, this is why he was the king of, of the waltz. And not only that, the king of culture. In a poll in 1890, the three most popular, the three most famous, I should say, people in the world were Queen Victoria, Otto von Bismarck, and Johann Strauss. Wonderful. The trifecta. <laughs> When I won't hear melody lifting through the house, then I want a melody. But 
Brad, your discussion about the waltz has brought up so many topics that go beyond even the art and the audio and the visual aspects of this film, and they actually start to permeate into the technological realm. And what I wanted to uh, take a deeper look into is the physics of the waltz itself. And as you mentioned, the three-quarter time almost illustrating this revolving and constant motion, and that is the center of all physics. Uh, everything is in free fall. Everything is rotating around its closest mass center. And as we see in this clip, the rotating station and the craft with the passengers coming in, commencing their docking sequence, they are in fact engaging into a waltz. That's what makes it it's so beautiful. They are, they are spinning and locking in together, and their movement has to be in time. Yeah. Uh, because if it's not, they're not going to be able to engage a proper seal uh, that will allow traverse between one vessel and to another. And I absolutely love the idea of the shuttle and the station in free fall. They're revolving around our world. It's the center of mass that has the biggest pull and it's going to cause the biggest interaction from gravity. So even though they're in free fall, they're being affected by this gravitational energy. And to compensate for that, the burst of the thrusters you see in space as the air is ejected out is moving the craft into alignment. And much like the Apollo craft, they have to have a uh, matching speed and they have to have perfect rotation mm -hmm. to dock properly. So when these craft finally meet, it's like the end of the waltz. It is. It, it absolutely is. Because as soon as it ends, boom, it cuts straight to the elevator and now we're inside. You see how they're using the vectoring? Mm -hmm. That's exactly how they do it in the Apollo docking sequence. It's a crosshair. They're trying to, to put a feeder to... It's just like refueling an aircraft in high altitude. It's like this generic plug that fits in, and once that seal is made, it can make like a proper seal. And then it can pump air in or out, or fuel in and out, whatever it needs to do. <clears throat> but you do have to be very precise. I mean, it's, it's like a foot in diameter or something like that. It's tiny, it's a tiny little thing. starting to align with it. Mm -hmm. approach vectors. Yeah, it's rotating at the same speed as the station. This is all so far advanced, I mean... The 
cosmonauts tried to put up a tiny little thing, but mm. it was just a, it was a tin can with some yeah. sensors on it. How do you start it? How should I know? Push buttons. When when did uh, Niven's Ringworld come out? I don't know. I'm gonna guess seventy two. It's probably 75? it's that's so crazy. Nineteen seventy. Wow, amazing. That's incredible, dude. It's interesting that even in all these years since two thousand and one was made, NASA nor any foreign government has ever built a space station that simulated artificial gravity by spinning a ring. And I don't know why they haven't even tried it. It's fascinating. They didn't induce artificial gravity on Skylab using the spinning wheel method. They used it with propulsion methods. But they did use, it was the first station to use gyroscopes to uh, make alterations to attitude. And uh, it didn't require any fuel. Which is incredible. I mean, that was super advanced. And now every piece of satellite hardware, GPS, weather, spy satellites, they all use it now. It's an easy correctional method. Um, no propulsion needed. No, no fuel exhausted. That's incredible. Uh, so what they did to simulate gravity was they did a slow burn on their main engine. Um, they had to increase the altitude, much like the ISS does periodically, or they would come crashing down to the atmosphere, which it eventually did uh, over the ocean and across maybe some of the Australian continental parts, too. I think they recovered um, a piece of the fuselage after it did come down. High bids on any of those pieces. If you can find some of that wreckage, yeah. Guaranteed. That's a paycheck right there. A lot of probes and stuff like that if they do make it down i think they do have like return badges on them so you can get it back to nasa if you want that's great so like your luggage but i'm sure some of them don't just to stay completely incognito but interesting yeah um weather satellites i think weather satellites are big especially weather balloons that they send up into the troposphere mm. super high altitude and eventually those balloons burst and when those balloons burst all that hardware does come crashing back down it's supposed to usually hit into uninhabited ocean areas but sometimes with uh, you know weather adjustments it can come into continental areas and people have recovered them but they usually do have some kind of Return to sender uh, stamped onto that hardware. Return to sender. You know, for years as a kid, I thought they were saying return to sender. Like, who the hell is to sender? Yeah. Who is this mystery person? Yeah. They can't get the letter to it. It's unfortunate. I was also remembering the other day the Beach Boys and Barbara Ann. The Bob, 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 Barbara Ann. Well, which one is it, Bob or Ann? Yeah. You know, it wasn't for a couple of years as a kid listening to an oldie station. I always had misheard that lyric as ba 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 a ram. Isn't that uh, weird? Because I thought they were talking about animals. Which makes sense. Pet sounds and everything. Yeah. I mean, there's a they takes a picture with a sheep, the cover of the album. So impressions in that actually. <laughs> the waltz. <laughs> the waltz. I turned Italian there for the waltz. It's so crazy that they don't have like any words that end in a consonant. Yeah. 
hell crazy. Their their language is literally vocalized cursive. Like it just doesn't stop. <laughs> That's fantastic. I don't know how they can do it. And from Clavius Base, this is Brad. This is Wes. Signing off. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Don't Marshall.